Welcome to Write Stuff Radio, where we showcase Christian authors worldwide. Each week, join me for a new author and a great new book to add to your library. Welcome to The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we are going to be talking to my guest co-host and contributor today, Eli Connolly. He is the author of the novella, Paper and Thorns. Let me tell you, if you like Beauty and the Beast, you may still like it after you read this story because it's a wild twist to the wonderful fairy tale that I love, particularly as a Disney girl who liked Beauty and the Beast as a kid. There's a lot of homage to it in this story, but it takes a wildly different direction. I can't wait to go into it in just a few moments. I want to thank all of you for your support of my newest release, A Match for Bernadette. Your response is absolutely phenomenal. And if you haven't had a chance to get it, you can get it exclusively on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold. We have been showcasing Christian authors for the past nine years, and as God gives us grace, we'll continue to do so. To find out how you can help out, simply go to our patreon.com slash write stuff and see what you can do. And as always, you covet your prayers. And so without further ado, I'm going to introduce my guest, Eli Connolly. Eli, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. And thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be with me today. Really, really enjoy having you. You know, we are colleagues at Lorehaven. So it's really nice to just talk to you outside of Lorehaven about your own work. So that's really good to have you with me. But I'm so excited about this novella. This is my probably my first one by you, I think, that I've read. And you know me, I'm a romance freak. So anything lightly romantic, I'm going to read. So I really am enjoying the story. And I can't wait to let our listeners know about it. But before I do that, people want to know about you. So go ahead and tell us about yourself. Well, I've been writing for... A frightening amount of time. <laughs> I started writing uh, in middle school, like really focusing on writing at that point because I wanted to write something that would touch other people the way that Narnia touched me. And that's still kind of at the back of my mind whenever I write anything because I want something that's going to make an impression on people, something that's going to last. I've uh, been married for just celebrated our 11 year wedding anniversary. Oh, happy anniversary! Thank you. We have two little hobbit children who keep us very busy and a calico cat who just adds to the mix. I think a lot of Christian fantasy readers and writers are impacted by Narnia. It was our first portal into imagination for some of us, particularly the wardrobe. I remember reading that book, and when I came out of the book, it was literally like coming out of another world. And you come back to this where you're like, oh, I'm here again. You almost felt like you went through the wardrobe after you finished reading that book. And it's so cool how even though Lewis is dead, how he still makes an impact on generations after generations. I think it lets us know just how important words are and how effective they can be even down through the years. Now, in your own works, what do you generally write? 
fantasy of all flavors is what I usually say. My first several novels were a mix of epic and portal fantasy. So I really think if Narnia and Middle Earth kind of got together, that's the kind of theme there. My first published novel was uh, more like a Harry Potter, Percy Jackson type thing, Albion Academy. It's currently out of print as I'm searching for a new publisher for that. But then you've got the Paper and Thorns uh, and its forthcoming companions are all sort of that urban fantasy fairy tale feel. Um, I've written things that are a little more cyberpunkish, but they still have a fantasy twist to them because I can't get away from fantasy even when I try, which is also evidenced in uh, my collection, The Path of Lucius Park, which was uh, largely formed out of the short stories that made up my master's thesis. Um, and in my master's program, they were very much, uh, you need to write realism. You need to learn how to write good characters and strong stories before you add all of the speculative stuff. And I was like, magical realism is my get out of jail free card here. So I, I wrote a series of stories set in a fictionalized version of my hometown that had just sort of like off the wall things going on, um, which if you read any kind of Southern Gothic magical realism type stuff, it's, it's in that vein, just a little, little less witchcraft. <laughs> but, uh, I just write whatever fantastical tale comes to mind usually. Fantasy is where you play. Now, whatever grows in that playground is where you get the fruit from. So if it's urban, if it's magical, like you said, or some other, it's going to get there. But fantasy is the playground. I like that analogy. I like that. You know, you mentioned about having a master's degree. Where did you get a master's degree in? University of Tennessee at Chattanooga. It's the same program that Sherry Priest, who's a fairly famous uh, steampunk and Southern Gothic author, she was one of their early graduates, and she's like one of the more famous Chattanooga area writers. What made you decide to do a retelling of Beauty and the Beast? Beauty and the Beast is my favorite fairy tale. It has been for as long as I can remember, going back to when I first saw the Disney film. And so if if I was ever going to write a fairy tale retelling, that was had to be at the very top of the list. Um, but this particular book had its genesis in a couple of things. The first was that when the live-action Disney film came out, my artist friend who actually ended up doing the cover art for Paper and Thorns was very disappointed in the design of the beast. She felt he was not beastly enough in the film. And so she did a sketch of what she thought he should have looked like. And it was a lot more horns and a lot scarier. And I took one look at it and I said, it would be really interesting if you saw the story of how this guy and Maleficent fell in love. And so that was like my first little seed for this story was, okay, we're going to do this. And it just sort of, started spinning like a snowball and it built itself up and I I started writing it and I said I can't let this turn into another novel because all of my story ideas want to be novels and I have a hard time writing shorter work sometimes and so I said I'm going to make sure that this is a novella we're not going past a certain point and my wife said good luck with that because she knows how I like to get long-winded with things and so that is the reason why it's such a short retelling is because I wanted to prove to myself that I could do something shorter. 
and it's also nice to be able to finish something a little faster and and fairy tale retellings i feel like are a very good place for that because the original tales for the most part are fairly short anyway so you don't have to pull it's not like if you're retelling like phantom of the opera or treasure island where you have to have this long narrative that you deal with although the original beauty and the beast was actually a novel and most people haven't read it i thought beauty and the beast was based off of a gentleman who had that hair disease there's there's a lot of theories that that contributed to it but the original villain of version was was a a novel length story and i've not even read the full version of it i've read a condensed version that was the most famous version is beaumont and that's the one that you're most likely to see in a fairy tale collection somewhere it's the one that most people even in my folklore class in undergrad that was the one that we taught from and learned from was the beaumont version because it's more condensed and it's in some ways it you know, it helps make it more streamlined, but there was a condensed version of the Villeneuve tale that I read that was much more intricate, and it felt like it respected the original a little better than Beaumont, because Beaumont was just trying to turn it into a social commentary. Like, you know, you might ha- think you're getting a beastly marriage, but hey, if you love him, he'll be turn out all right. Whereas in Villeneuve's version, you've got all of these fairy politics going on in the background the the beast actually doesn't do anything like wrong wrong like in most versions of the tale his only crime there is saying no to the romantic advances of his fairy godmother who is repeatedly pointed out was a wicked fairy godmother (laughs) that's like okay so the only thing he did wrong was say no to a lady who was trying to abuse her power good reading that was just a very eye-opening for me and just seeing how there's this very elaborate backstory, like Beauty is the daughter of this rebel fairy who gets adopted by the merchant, and it's just all of these things going on in the background. So it was a really, it, it was amazing how intricate this story that we think of as such a simple tale was. But yeah, I, I love Beauty and the Beast. I, I anything that gives me that kind of transforming power of love moment I'm all about. I like Beauty and the Beast too, but I like the fact that in your story, we're finding out the story of how the beast got to where he is. It starts off with his obsession with art and beautiful things. Our unnamed narrator is in a year of paper art. He's doing origami. He's really dedicated to finding out how to make really beautiful origami but it's from another source so he is using all of his artistic endeavors and he mentions early on that he tends to have these very strong obsessions with a particular art form for anywhere from a month to a year it doesn't usually last very long some of that is him dealing with his past but he ends up becoming obsessed with these particular tricks that the the inventor, who's a stage magician, is doing, and he wants to be able to recreate that. And then as he's looking at this one obsession that he thinks is going to be his ultimate, in comes the inventor's daughter, and he realizes that 
yes, he wants to know the magic behind the trick, but she is not necessarily an obsession, but like he wants to know her. He wants to understand the mystery behind this person because she's never in the interviews that her father, she's never like in the spotlight. And so for him, it's finding out that hidden thing, that hidden knowledge. And so he wants to create perfect roses out of paper to sort of impress her. Like he's in, he's in that romantic stage of, oh, well, if I do this, then she'll be impressed. Or if I do this, then maybe she'll, you know, talk to me for more than two seconds. And so it's an interesting place to be in, whether you're a guy or a girl in that regard. It's like if you're wanting to pursue someone who is kind of rebuffing your pursuits, but not saying absolutely not, just saying I'm not, you know, Molly in that story is very, she's very focused. She's focused on protecting her father. And for our narrator, he doesn't really worry about protecting himself because he doesn't have much left to protect in his mind. So it's interesting to see how their two different viewpoints come toward each other and how they kind of change each other. Because of his obsession with art, I got the idea that he was kind of obsessed with creating something that would last. There's a line in the book where he says, paper roses don't wilt. And I think that relates to his own tragic backstory, which I won't go into. I really want our listeners to pick up a copy of Paper and Thorns online on Amazon or wherever books are sold. And it's this idea of trying to capture something that won't disintegrate, that won't go away, that won't wilt or die. And I think all of us in some way are trying to create paper roses, wouldn't you say? I think that's true. Even people who don't consciously think about it want to leave some lasting mark on the world. They want to have some kind of legacy, whether it's something that they have created or done or even just the impact they have on other people. And for us as Christians, we understand that this life isn't the end of it. And so we have not only that natural human desire to have something that lives on after us, but that desire to have an impact on something that's reflected in eternity. I remember reading a sermon when I was in high school that talked about the astronomers who are in heaven are now studying stars from a completely different perspective. And the idea, and he went on and on. The idea was that the things that God has put in our hearts in this life don't just stop when we get to heaven and then to the new creation. They keep going, but it's in new ways and in new forms that we aren't necessarily going to conceive of at this point. I like to think that Lewis and Tolkien and Sayers and all of the rest of the great Christian writers are writing new stories even now and that one day I'll get to join them in that. But even if it's not writing that we continue to do for eternity, if it's just creating in some capacity as sub-creators, as Tolkien would call us, I feel like that's something that all humans long for and strive toward, even if they don't really think about it that way. 
paper roses don't have thorns. However, real roses smell so sweet. And you have to decide, do I want the artificial or do I want the real thing, even though the real thing can hurt me? I think that's reflected now in current culture where there is a movement to determine and make love whatever you want it to be, even if it isn't real. And people have the greatest capacity to hurt you, but they also have the greatest capacity to give you the love that many people long for. And I think I like the difference with the title as I was trying to analyze the title with Paper and Thorns, because you can still get paper cuts, but you kind of do it to yourself because you deal with paper. You know what I'm saying? But thorns are a protective part of the rose, yet we still pluck them because even though it hurts, we still, still smell sweet, they're still beautiful, and they're worth knowing, but they're only here for a short time. So there's a lot going on with the title, with a lot of themes going on here. But in this particular story of Beauty and the Beast, when we first meet him, he's going through a maze. And he was given a task, and the task was to find the perfect rose, find the mask, and find the name. And I don't know what the name is about. I haven't gotten to that part yet, but it's very intriguing what's going on. And throughout this mission that he's on, you learn about a lot of things that's going on in the story. So with Paper and Thorns, it is novella, but it does read much bigger because it has that epic feel to it, even though it's very condensed, almost like the old Reader's Digest books where you have condensed novels. And one guy said a condensed novel is not a book. <laughs> That's what he told me because he hated Reader's Digest. But you still get an essence of the story. And in here you still get the essence of that. You do know that our unnamed narrator does love or has feelings of great regard for, quote, unquote, our beauty, Molly. We know Molly is feeling him. She's feeling him, but she's also trying to protect her father. And then you have the father who is this very mysterious figure because whenever he performs his tricks, he never takes off his mask, ever. But interestingly enough, the mask changes as he's doing the tricks that he performs on stage. One of the things I want to talk to you about was this mask thing. Is it symbolic to people who present one image and you never ever really get to see their faces? Or is the mask more so protective to keep the vulnerabilities of the inventor, thus ourselves, out? I think you definitely have room for both interpretations. I was definitely leaning more into the protectiveness just for certain plot devices that come in later. And I also, I pulled in a lot of inspiration from the myth of Eros and Psyche, which is like one of the oldest forms of a Beauty and the Beast story that we have. Um, that's where the three tasks come from as well. And so this idea of not being able to see the beloved's face was, it was a very interesting idea. And I wanted to play around with that a little more. And of course, every time you add something to a story, it just grows and it takes on new connotations and builds more structure around it. I, I, I would also say that the movie, The Prestige was a very big influence on this one. Oh, look at you. So I don't know if that was anything that came across, but I, I love that movie. Just the fact that it's so intricate and like 
I can still watch it after having seen it, I don't know how many times, and get something new or catch one of the little moments that I didn't see before. And so that was, I, I wanted to have that feeling of, okay, there's there's more going on than we see. And because that's true in life, like every interaction you have with somebody, there's an entire series worth of history with that person that you probably will never get to know. Even the people that we interact with on a regular basis who are there foundationally in our lives, we only get a certain amount of it. And so having that sort of play into a story just kind of lets us see how little we really do understand, even when we think we've got all the information. So, but yeah, there's there's definitely room to say that the inventors changing masks can represent the fact that we all wear masks in social interactions. I mean, I can think in my day, uh, my day job is working as a barista. So during my day, there are different sort of aspects of myself that come out depending on who the customer is. Because there are some customers that I can be the very, you know, snarky, sarcastic person with. And there are others that it's like, okay, we're going to be the more professional business person. And there are others that's like, okay, we can drop all the Disney references and they'll get all of that of me. Um, And it's interesting how how much you, you sort of switch back and forth between the different parts of yourself. And then you wonder, does, do these people that I would consider good acquaintances or even friends in some cases, how much of me are they actually seeing? In fact, I had one customer just a couple of weeks ago that we had talked about geeky interests, you know, movies and shows and things like that before. And I had mentioned going that I was planning on going to a Tim Hawkins concert with a friend of mine. And when I explained, you know, he's a Christian comedian, think Weird Al, just a little bit cleaner and all this, he was like, oh, I wouldn't have guessed that you were religious. And it kind of took me back for a moment because I was like, you know, it's it's kind of like when people are like, oh, I didn't realize you were a writer. Like, those are two things that are very integral to me. And it made me pause and think, okay, how much of that part of myself has actually been coming out in our interactions. And I've had other interactions in the past where people like will apologize if they swear in front of me because they just, even though I never say anything that like is condemnatory toward people who swear, it's like sometimes people can tell it's like, okay, well you don't. So therefore we assume that you, you know, there's, there's a problem here if we've, done this and I usually tell people you know it doesn't bother me as long as you're not swearing at me yeah there is a difference between swearing at me and then you just using expletives because you want to there's complete difference yeah I get everyone has those moments where they say something out of pain or frustration and it's like you know that's a thing but yeah it's it's interesting how may or may not be presenting your truest self to someone whether you intend to or not. And sometimes it's the interaction itself that kind of sets the tone for how much you reveal to someone, particularly if you're in a business setting as opposed to in a church setting. Like in a church setting, I can be more real with my brothers or sisters than perhaps in a business setting. But then you don't want to let your light not not shine in front of people. So yeah, I totally understand and get where you're coming from with that. But that was just one of the things I was thinking of that was reading the book. Like I said, I really love the book. As I was telling you before we started recording, I feel like it's music. There's a music here 
as I read the words. It's actually a very beautiful story. I love the way you are using words and phrases and metaphors, and it's just liquid to me, absolutely liquid, and I'm drinking it, and I love it. And particularly since it's Beauty and the Beast, which I don't think you can go wrong with Beauty and the Beast. I just don't think you can go wrong. Like, if you mess up Beauty and the Beast, then you need help. <laughs> you need an injection, and IV of creativity. If you don't understand that story, you're going to have trouble understanding any story, I think. Yeah, because its simplicity is actually quite impactful. That's what makes the story so well-loved, I think, because... It's usually the simplest things that are harder to do. Love me when I don't look my best. Love me even when I look horrible. Love me despite everything that goes wrong. Love has nothing to do with the, with the appearance per se. It's all about what's on the inside. The original story ends with the moral that a thing it says, but it also applies to people. A, so I would say a person must be loved before they can be lovable, which goes back to the same idea that we see in Scripture that we don't love God out of our own thing, but we love because he loved us first. Like, love descends on us, and thus we become lovable. And that's a very challenging thing day to day, because in a lot of Christian circles, we like to say, well, I have to love them. I don't have to like them. (laughs) Or, I love you, but I don't really like you right now. And we have to remember that love doesn't necessarily seek out the things that we would think of as lovely and lovable. True love, that agape love, even goes to the point of finding those who are unlovable and loving them despite it. Like us. He loved us before we even knew we were going to be here, and he knew all about us and those wonderful mysteries of the Lord that sometimes baffle us. I remember watching a testimony about some man doing something, and he had came from a place of sin to God's community. And he said, it's incredible that he loves me. Me. He just kind of, he kept crying. He was like, he loves me. He loves me. And he, it's not just a little bit of love. It's, you know, for lack of a better term, crazy love, that he's in love with me. And it's just fascinating that you can see this in a lot of fairy tales. And we talked about this with another Lore Haven associate. A lot of fairy tales have the divine element interwoven throughout the story. Always that that love that precedes everything, that supersedes everything. I do this because of love. Christ did this for us too. And so, Eli, we are getting to the end of our show today. I do have a couple more questions. How have people who have read Paper and Thorns responded to the book? Everyone that I know who has said something to me after reading it has just loved it. I would say that this and there's a short story that I did a couple of years ago after my grandfather died called Grandmother Moon. Those are probably the two pieces of writing that I'm the most proud of. I'm not going to recommend you read that one right now because I know that you're still feeling everything from your granny passing. But that was a story that came about through me working through a lot of things. But yeah, it's I've had a lot of really positive response from the people that have read it because it's not necessarily like New York Times bestseller list, so I don't have like hundreds of thousands of people going, hey, but it's nice to know that when you put something out there, even if it's just a handful of people who grab hold of it, that you you have reached people, that they have found something worthwhile there. 
I was going to ask you to inspire our aspiring authors out there whom God has given the gift to write to pick up the pen and do so, but I think you already did because you never know just how impactful your words can be and how people can respond to those words. Like we said earlier in the broadcast, we said, here we got Lewis, who's dead now, and his words are still impacting generations after that. And let us know just how powerful the written word is. And so I think you already encourage our authors out there. If people want to get in contact with you, where can they find you online? You can go to ElijahDavidAuthor.blogspot.com. That's where my very neglected blog is, but it also has links to my various books. You can also email me at Eli at Lorehaven.com, or you can find me on Goodreads and Facebook under my pen name, Elijah David. Well, Eli, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for being with us on the show today, and I cannot wait to have you back real soon. All right. Thank you very much. And we were talking today to Eli Carley. He is the author of the book, Paper and Thorns. It's a novella, which is a retelling of Beauty and the Beast in an urban setting, and definitely you're going to enjoy this story. It reads pretty quickly, so go ahead, love on my brother, and pick up your copy of Paper and Thorns today. What I really liked about this particular story was the fact that you have our unnamed narrator being the beast and how it happened, how it came to be. Most of us are introduced to the story after the fact. The beast is already a beast, but now we're going to follow his footsteps into how he became a beast. And darn it all, it wasn't quite all his fault. In what way? You have to pick up paper and thorns to discover that. Thank you so much for joining me for this edition of The Right Stuff. I'm the Queen Parker J. You have a wonderful, absolutely glorious, blessed day.